thank you, uh, Jared. You will surely be uh, missed here, I'm sure, and we're, we'll be looking forward to uh, seeing you guys come back and visit us, um, for sure. Um, thank you, worship team. That was uh, just a, a great time of worship, and just to get us right in our, in our mindset for just our praise and our admiration to the Lord. Um, so we are going to be today in Psalm 19. That will be the main text that we're going to be out of this morning. Um, and I feel uh, extremely blessed and humbled to be able to, to be up here uh, this morning. And uh, Psalm 19 has always been a um, pretty special place in my heart. Um, and I'm looking forward to going through, through that this morning. So if you join me in Psalm 19... To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man run its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, as, as we just go through this text, um, we just see your glory that, and how you have revealed yourself to us and uh, just... I pray that you will be with me as I share your truths, Lord, and just be with uh, all those that hear you to open up their hearts and their ears to receive your word. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look to this text this morning, um, we can really see this psalm is broken up into three parts. Uh, verses 1 through 6 show us God's natural revelation um, to all of mankind through his creation. Verses 7-11 show us God's special revelation given through his word. And verses 12 through 14 show us a reflection of ourselves and a need for God's grace. C.S. Lewis, the famous writer and Christian apologist, said of Psalm 19, it's the greatest poem in the Psalter and of the greatest lyrics in the world. So um, as we do an overview of the whole psalm, uh, we're just going to be really scratching the surface of it. And you might hear that said a lot um, from preachers just saying that. But it's so true that the more that you dig into God's word and the more that the spirit of God is revealing the truth, the more the, the endless depths of richness. And um, so my, my prayer here today is that we can tap into that and that God's glory will be revealed. And I know it will be. Um, so this is a poem penned by David and, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, there isn't any context or time frame of when this psalm was written, um, but we can imagine uh, David as a shepherd uh, in, his, in his youth being out in the open fields and having uh, plenty of time to be sitting back and gazing into the heavens both day and night. Uh, being, uh, being brought up in the Torah from his youth, he would have had plenty of time to meditate on God's word. So it would seem natural that he would pen a poem that would show the natural revelation in creation and God's special revelation through his word. And then also see that, that need for grace in his life. Um, 
So think about how much more are we benefited today being able to have the total, complete revelation of God's uh, word in the Bible. And, you know, and then that's something that we can ask ourselves. Do we really cherish that word like we ought to? You know, we live in a culture today where there are many people that just flat out deny the existence of God. Um, a culture that has been indoctrinated with the theory of evolution, as seen in our schools, popular media, a culture that openly mocks God and sin with no fear of God. Um, and we've seen the rotten fruits and the decay in our uh, society because of that. Um, even more sadly, though, we live in a culture where professing Christians don't know God truly as he has revealed himself um, through Scripture. They might take little snippets here and there out of context and try to blend it in with popular culture or with anything that is, you know, the popular um, wave of, of what's going on at the current time. And we see this on so many issues with sin and the nature of mankind, hell and the realities of eternal punishment, and the notion that God is here to serve us and our fleshly desires uh, in some form of prosperity to advance our own goals. Um, and all these notions are nothing more than idolatry. It's the forming of a God in, in their own mind to suit their desires, a nice cuddly God that forms to the image of, um, of, of, of them and how they want to, uh, and, and not as God has declared it in Scripture. And so as Christians and Bible believers, we are to reject any of these fallacies and stand boldly on God's truth. Um, so as we go through this text today, uh, let us see who God truly is. Let us see the glory due to him. Let us see God's perfect word revealed to us. And let us see our, our true sinful nature. And let us see the grace that we so badly need that is a free gift of God through Jesus Christ. Um, so as we pick up in verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Again, here we see God's general revelation to all mankind. I mean, creation absolutely screams that there is a creator. Um, the heavens are so massive that no one can miss it. And the psalmist wants us to, to look up and to admire God's handiwork in, in creation. You know, if you think about going out into the night sky and looking at the sunset, we could just get struck with beauty and we're speechless when we look at the beautiful canvas that God has painted. I mean, I'm sure we've all had moments where, you know, it's like we just have to get someone and say, come on, come look at the sunset. This is so beautiful. And you guys just stand there in awe and wonder. Um, I couldn't believe it, but last Wednesday we had a, uh, a lightning storm here in California. Uh, that was like the talk of the town. <laughs> it, it doesn't happen much here. So, um, but it was absolutely stunning. I mean, we even went into our, uh, into our backyard and had dinner out there, and we were just sitting back and enjoying it. Um, and you see, it was nice. You were able to see, like, as the sun was, going, as the sun was, get, uh, as it was getting into the evening, you could see the different shades of the orange, red, pink. You can even see a slight little rainbow there, and then you see the lightning just crashing through there. And it's like, wow, that is so amazing um, and breathtaking. Um, and then you, you, you think about in other terms when there's this ferocious thunderstorm. And if anyone's ever been in, been in a th ferocious thunderstorm, I mean, you just feel paralyzed with, I mean, you just hear the crashing of the thunder and the, and the glory in that. And it's like, wow, this is just part of God's creation. How much more is God uh, more glorious than, than this? And so um, during the summer, my, my kids and I, we like to go in our backyard and we'll spend the night on the trampoline uh, back there. And I've yet to convince my wife to come join us, but, but I'm working on it. So, um, but as we lay down there and we look into the night sky, it's just one of those things that I always say, wow, the heavens declare the glory of God. And it, it's just something that we can't wrap our, our, our head around just to the infinite size of the universe. Um, and it, and, but God knows the number of stars and he calls them by name. He also knows the number of hairs on our head. And there is nothing our God doesn't know, nothing that surprises him. He made it all. 
And Psalm 3 and 4 says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yeah, I mean, when I, when I think about that, it just leads me to, to praise and worship of our creator. You know, so what is the glory of God? I, I would say in short, it's the radiance of his infinite worth, his infinite value, which is not matched by any other or anything. He is set apart. That's why we hear the seraphim uh, crying aloud in scripture saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And this glory of God is on full display in creation and through his redemptive acts to reconcile us sinners with him. So then how can anyone be so blind to look at the heavens and say that all this happened by accident, by random explosion in time, or that we evolved through time? Um, with man's advancement in, science, in the scientific era, the hymn of creation and praise to God has unfortunately been stifled. Some people today might read these opening verses as maybe like a naive religious uh, nonsense or something that was just written long ago by, you know, shepherds in the, in, in the uh, poor shepherds in the outback. But, and, and so looking at the vastness of the universe and its alleged billions of years process, it's a... Uh, a non-believer does not hear the hymn of God's glory, but it's just the drone of a naturally complete process. Believers as well as non-believers need to know that the scientific discoveries related to the creation of the universe don't silence creation's hymn of praise, but amplify it, and in turn amplify the glory of God that is due to him. Um, my family and I recently went to the Creation Museum in the Ark Encounter in Kentucky. For those of you that don't know, it's a uh, Answers in Genesis ministry. Uh, it puts it on, and it's basically like a Disneyland for Christians. Uh, it's a great place where um, the, they lay out the creation as seen in, in the biblical, uh, as through the Bible. Uh, there's a great apologetic argument for God and his creation and the biblical flood, but they never shy away from presenting the gospel as well, too. And it's just nice to be, it was nice to be in that surrounding and that setting because that's so foreign in our culture where everything we go is just um, always more in, in, especially like in a museum that you go to, everything always has that bent towards evolution. But to be able to have the glory of God on full display and to be able to see it as natural and just proclaiming that this is what it is. It was a breath of fresh air for sure. Um, but one of my biggest takeaways from there was in the way that they describe it is you have one world and two views. So you have the biblical creation model and then you have the, uh, the natural evolutionary model, uh, right? The biblical creation model as described by God in the Bible and then the naturalistic evolutionary model by man. Um, they'll look at the same evidence, right? They're exploring the same evidence, but they had come up with two different views. So you're looking at rocks, fossils, plants, people, animals, oceans, continents, world stars, universe, you, you name it. And evolution will say it's the result of a slow and gradual process over billions of years. And the biblical would say that, looks at those same rock layers and say, no, it's the overwhelming evidence that they were rapidly laid down during the, the flood, the, during the global flood as described in Genesis. And so many people might not even realize that there is a solid evidence for a biblical creation model which thoroughly lays out a young earth creation model as detailed in the Bible. Um, we just have this constant barrage and claims of the earth being 4.5 billion years old. And so God's word and science are not at odds with each other. Rather, there is this great harmony between the two. And so why do creationists and evolutionists reach different conclusions? It all comes down to our starting foundations. No one stands in midair. Everyone's going to have a presupposition that they look at. And so for the Christian, our starting foundation is rooted in God's word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do we believe that? 
Then God created man in his own image, male and female. He created them. Do we believe that? Then God said he made the world in six days, and it was very good, and rested on the seventh day. Do we believe that? Then by the rebellion of man against God, we have been separated from God. But God made a way to reconcile us back to him through the shedding of blood from the perfect Jesus that came, the incarnate God perfectly manifested in the flesh and rose again and conquered death. So, so right there we have so many tests where do we believe all these things that God has written in his Bible? Or are we going to start cherry picking and kind of maybe blending a little bit of, of things of what the world says or what we say? Um, and then for the atheists, it's based on the foundation of man that we've evolved through natural processes. They will deny God and deny the glory that is due to him. Um, in Psalm 14.1, we read, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You know, they have to believe the scientific impossibility that nothing created everything. And the Bible actually tells us that there's really no such thing as an atheist. Because if we look to Romans 1, 18 and 23, and I'll just read it right here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for all they, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Right? So there it is. Professing to be, or claiming to be wise, they became fools. So you can listen to scientists, professors, learned men, all talk about how we evolved from monkeys and flatly deny the existence of God. And they sound pretty smart on what they're saying. The language that they use are much more elegant than I am. But the thing with the atheists is they will do whatever they have to do to not believe in God. Because if they believe in God, then they are subject to God. Then there is moral accountability. And that's where the problem arises. Um, you know, then you have the worst of both worlds where people try to combine creation and evolution and they don't stand strong on God's word. Um, and this, this idea just contradicts the Bible in so many points. And just one thing that, that's, that really, just a quick thing that, that I see is um, when God created the world and if they say that he used millions of years of evolution before man came into the picture, there would have been death before Adam entered. But the Bible clearly states that death came as a result of Adam's sinning. So that's one of the main points in Scripture, that through Adam's sin, God's perfect creation was wrecked. For the wages of sin is death. And Jesus also said in Mark 10, 6, that um, man and woman were created at the beginning of history. So there it is again. If we try to go against, or, or I mean, conform to what, what is popular or what the masses will say, and we, and we try to blend in Christianity with that, that we're not doing God any, any, any service right there, right? We're stealing away from his glory. That's why we are called to stand on the truth and stand on God's word. Um, so picking back up in verse 2, we see, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. It doesn't matter if it's day or night, the revelation of God's existence can be seen throughout the whole world. Day to day pours out speech. Um, and so we see in creation, um, we, we can see, but, but there's not a voice that you can hear. It's, it's the words that are just spoken to our eyes and to our heart that establishes that we do have a divine creator. And night to night is revealing knowledge. 
God has designed that nature should teach man of his divine being, power, and wisdom. So there's nothing secret or private about anything. God's creation is on full display for everyone. His glory is on full display for everyone to witness. Um, and so far, so far, I've really only touched on the heavens. But when we think about more of the fascinating intricacies of creation, we think about um, how God communicates through us through bees, the birds, the flowers, the trees, the seasons, the universe, the hydrologic cycle, microorganisms, our DNA. I mean, the list goes on for endless, and it's, and it's never ending, and it's just so beautiful that, and, and for us Christians, we can look at it, and we can see it, and we can just admire it, and soak it in, and just say, wow, God, you are amazing, and he deserves all the glory, and so it just elevates God and just gives him the, the proper glory that is due to him. Um, I love watching uh, nature shows. Uh, you know, nowadays you have the video cameras that are so, so high tech and you got the slow motion going. You'll see a pod of like a thousand dolphins swimming and jumping through the water. They're using their echolocation to go through it and to find fish. And, and you see all these cool shots, and you got the cinematic music playing and everything, and you're like, oh, wow, this is so amazing. And then you hear this old guy with an English accent saying, millions of years ago, dolphins came from land animals, or evolved from land animals. And it's like, totally ruins the mood right there. But what a constant stealing of God's glory right there. Right, they're, they're taking something that God has clearly made and, and, and turning it into something and giving credit to, to, to someone else or something else. And, it, and it's sad. And, and so this is the great issue that's at stake in the controversy of creation and evolution. The theory of evolution is an attempt to come up with the hypothesis as to the process by which the universe was formed and how life developed. And um, this point of view, mainly known as Darwinism, is mainly taught in the public schools and, and in the popular media. But again, it's a means of removing God from his creation. It's a teaching that everything we see in creation just happened by natural processes, apart from an intelligent um, and creative uh, being. So then the testimony of nature becomes silent, and then man doesn't know that there's a God in the universe. And then the gospel message, which God has designed to speak to man, it, it falls on deaf ears. So nature is designed to tell us not only how things happen, but who is behind them. So as we gaze upon creation, do we give glory to God for his creation? Or do we say, look at these natural evolving processes? Back to, uh, back to our text in verse 4. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man run its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. To the observer on earth, the sun goes across the sky, and as men see it, they are exposed to his testimony. It tells of the glory of God. We see the brilliance of the sun shining and, and the warming of the earth. Even if you're blind and you, and you can't see, you could still feel the, the heat of, of the sun on you because the sun gives life to all it touches. And so we could see a, a pretty cool parallel here drawn between the sun and, and Jesus. Jesus came from his home in heaven to earth like a bridegroom to claim his bride, the church. And like a strong man finished his pre prescribed course by the way of the cross and rose again, defeating death, and then returned to heaven. Uh, in Malachi 2, there's even a reference to Jesus as the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness. Jesus is the light of the world. He came into the world, but the world rejected him. John 3:19, and this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. So here's another thing that we could think about when we see the glory of the sun. How much more is the glory of God who made the sun? Right? So, I mean, so if we look up to the sun, well, okay, well, don't look up to the sun, but you get what I'm, <laughs> you get what I'm saying. So if we look at the sun for like 10 seconds, right, it will physically, probably like 10 seconds, it will physically damage our eyes 
possibly for, you know, we will have repercussions for that. And so we see that God created it. When we went to the Creation Museum, they have this stargazer planetarium. So it's this 30-meter diameter dome, and you sit back in these nice chairs, and they, and they show um, a video animation. And the one that we saw was called Created Cosmos, uh, and it just shows how, how vast our universe is. Um, it shows the size of the Earth and the other planets. So it shows that our Earth's size, the size of the Earth can fit into the sun, one million and three hundred thousand times, right? One million three hundred thousand Earths can fit into the sun, and then there is a supergiant star Betelgeuse that is six hundred times the diameter of the sun, and then we see the size of our Milky Way, and then we see the size of, and then we know that the size of our, our, our the Milky Way galaxy is only one of billions of galaxies out there, and it's like what? It's that big and it's that massive. It just Oh, Lord, how great are your works. Um, and so we see in Deuteronomy and Hebrews that God is identified as a consuming fire. There's no mystery or poetry about that. It means he is a fire and he will consume and he can destroy. I, th- I think so many people have such a low view of God and as I stated earlier, have created an idol in their minds of who they want God to be to form their lifestyle. But that's not the God of the Bible, and it's not the God that has revealed himself to us. Hebrews 10.31 says, It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. 1 Timothy 6.16 says, God who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. We see the account in Exodus 33 Um, that Moses said to God, please show me your glory. And God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and where my glory passes. I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Right? Sinners can't behold the face of God and live. And we think of three other encounters in the Bible where someone was seeing God or his divine glory in a vision. Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Ezekiel 1, there's a reference to seeing the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face. Revelation in John's vision John says his countenance was as the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. That's the view of God in Scripture. Compare that to what man's thinking is of God in today's culture. You know, maybe people have this uh, idea that, you know, God is up there in heavens on a cloud with a white beard and he's reaching out his hand uh, as the painting shows, touching Adam. That's not who God is. God has revealed himself to us in scripture and he is mighty and he is glorious and he is always worthy of our praise. In a, in a television interview, the famous uh, evolutionary biologist and atheist Richard Dawkins was asked by the questioner, if there were a God that met you after death, what would you say? Dawkins, a very proud man who's very anti, anti-Christian, smugly remarked and said, if I met God in the unlikely event after I died, the first thing I would say is, well, which one are you? Are you Zeus? Are you Thor? Are you Baal? Are you Mithras? Are you Yahweh? Which God are you? And why do you take such great pains to conceal yourself and hide away from us? And I would say to Dawkins, you will say no such thing. You will be falling down on your face in paralyzed in fear and have the worst feeling surrounding your body knowing that you have denied your maker and that you are without excuse. You spent your whole life suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, pushing people away from Christ, blaspheming his name, and now you stand condemned for all eternity. And I, I pray he repents and turns to the Lord So when we don't have a right view of God through Scripture, you're subject 
to man's opinions, traditions of man, and our, and our own imaginations in our head. And you mix that with pride and arrogance, and we have a lost world. Just look around. The awesome glory of God exceeds far anything that we can imagine. And when we realize this, it just leads us to a sense of wonder and humility. The consuming fire of the Lord matters because of our worship. Rather than treating worship flippantly, we are called to worship the Lord properly and reverently. We worship him in spirit and in truth. God deserves all the glory, and we dare not attempt to diminish that or steal that in any way. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the only sovereign. And so we need to know who he is and how he has revealed himself to us in Scripture. So through creation, we see in the first six verses, it's pretty clear that God has created everything, and he is glorious. So now as we get into verse 7, we, we see a transition where God's special revelation um, is revealed, and that is through God's word. And so, even though uh, God's creation is awesome as it, as, it, as it is, and it's awesome, there's no uh, salvific plan in, in just by looking at creation, because there's no salvation without the gospel, and there's no gospel without the scripture. The Holy Spirit working through scripture reveals God's will, his plan, his purposes, and the way of salvation. And so if we read verses uh, 7 through 9, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So in these three verses, we see six uh, titles of the word, we see six characteristics of the word, and we see six benefits and effects of the word. So the six titles of the word, we see the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and the judgments of the Lord. The six characteristics, they're perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. And then the benefits of that, they restore the soul, they make wise the simple, they rejoice the heart, enlighten the eyes, endure forever, and are righteous altogether. A commentator noted this perfectly. It's as if uh, David picks up this diamond, turns it in six different ways, and expresses the brilliance of each facet. That's how we can relate to these verses right here. Um, so here we can see the law refers not only to just the, the law given to Moses and the Ten, uh, ten Commandments, but all throughout Scripture, uh, God's divine instruction as he has revealed it to us. When David wrote this, he only had a small part of the Scriptures revealed to him at this point. And God's Word is perfect. It is complete and comprehensive it's a flawless set of instructions, completely sufficient for mankind. Our Bibles are manuals to help us navigate through life. And it reveals the keys to everlasting life through Jesus Christ. And so when we look at this reviving of the soul, we see that God's, um, God's word will convert and transform the soul. The inner person, our, 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 our eternal person, and I can only think of Hebrews 4.12 at this, at this time. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That, that verse rings so true to me in my, in my own conversion. You know, I grew up in a Christian home, Christian parents. I had heard... Obviously, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. 
to me, it was more of just a head knowledge. There was never really that relationship there. There was never an active pursuit of seeking God, seeking his righteousness. I think to me, being a Christian was, was more similar just to maybe identifying as an American. I was, I'm born here, raised here. So with Christianity, I'm born in a Christian family. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. You know, I, I would say that I confess Jesus with my lips but my heart was far from him. But God, through his grace, finally brought me to a point where I was able to see my spiritual bankruptcy. And so instead of going my whole life kind of trusting myself, it was something where God had revealed to me just to fall down on my knees and to put my faith and trust in him and to, to cry out to him in repentance. And, and so then that was the first time I, I, I soberly and actively pursued God. And the more I immersed myself in the scriptures, the more I was blown away with all the truths that were, that, that were in there, that had, that had always been right there. And, I, and I'm sure there was times where I had read that same verse, and you just read right over it. And, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit, Working, working in the lives. The Holy Spirit will, will work in your life and open up those scriptures. I mean, I had so many presumptions about God and the Bible that were just dead wrong and, and, and just kept getting blasted away. And so the moment that God gave me the ears to, to, to hear the gospel for the first time, I saw God the way I've never seen him before. And then I saw myself how I've never seen myself before. I saw my sin, I saw my brokenness, and I saw God's righteousness. And the Lord showed me through scriptures, prayer, and the Holy Spirit's work that Jesus Christ had the power and authority to save me, and he's the only mediator between my sinful brokenness and God's perfect holiness and righteousness. Yeah, it was awesome. Truths of Scripture, just jumping off the page, reading it, and just slashing through a stony heart. And, and all that does is, is magnify Christ right there. It just puts us in our right place and just shows how great and how merciful God is to us when we are so undeserving of it. What is... How am I any better than anyone else? It's only by God's grace that I'm saved. And when you ponder that, and you reflect on that, it's worthy of worship. And it's a very sad state to be in when you have a proud heart and you think that you're a good person and that God owes you eternal life. Or we have an approach that I'm holier than others and that, uh, that how can God not grant me everlasting life? I mean, he needs me. I mean, what a, what a foolish thought to have. Many people are deceived in thinking that if your good outweighs your bad in the balance of God's justice that he'll just certainly accept you into heaven. You know, try that logic in a court of law, right? You see a criminal uh, rob someone's house, murder someone in the act of it, and then he goes to the judge and says, yes, judge, you're right, I'm, I'm guilty of that, but just know that I do so much good. I do this and that and this. And the judge is going to look at him and say, I'm not judging you on your goodness. I'm judging you on your transgression of the law. And, 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 when we, and when we see that, we just see that all of our righteousness, anything that we can bring to the table, is as filthy rags. There's nothing that we can bring to God and try to say, look at my goodness, Lord. And so when we get a grip of that, we can see 
the condemnation that we're under. But then, that just opens the door to the cross and makes it all that much more glorious. And, and so the problem that we see in the world today is that so many people will profess, profess their own goodness. And, and so what, what that does is they still see themselves elevated to this level here, and God is just kind of there, kind of down in this area, as opposed to seeing your true state of your heart and seeing God's gloriousness as he is. The definition of good in the eyes of God is moral perfection. And so as we shine the light of God's law on our heart, we see that we are not good in any way. Charles Spurgeon quoted said, saying, they will never accept grace until they tremble before a just and holy law. So if we take time to reflect on God's Ten Commandments and see how much we've broken them, I know that I've broken them a hundredfold. You shall not have other gods before me. Idolatry, blaspheming God's name, lying, coveting, um, having hate in your heart is the same as murder. Looking lustfully is the same as adultery in our hearts, as Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. So God's standard is not like man's standard. He is holy. And so the law is going to expose our sin. It's going to shine the spotlight of God onto the dark crevices of our heart, showing us who we are. In the book of Romans, we see many powerful truths about this. It says, for by the law is knowledge of sin. And in chapter 7, we see that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. And then again, I would not have known sin but by the law. Romans 3.19, that every mouth is stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So when we're in God's word and we're studying his divine instructions that he's given to us, we see that we fall short of God as he's instructed us to do. Galatians 3.24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. That's the purpose of the law. It's to bring us to Christ when we examine God's law and his divine instruction, it's going to do its purpose. It's going to show the nature of our sin, and the law is going to convict us, and it'll show us that we're guilty before God. So the law doesn't justify us. It just leaves us guilty. And James 2.10 even says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. The law leaves us con- a condemned criminal on death row, As each day passes, we're getting one day closer to the death and to face God as our judge. It is appointed for man once to die, and after that, the judgment. So this all just leads us, with God's grace, to a point of contrition, just godly sorrow for our sin, turning away from our sin, having that change of mind. It's seeing the glorious sacrifice of Christ the expressed image of the invisible God, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life and hung on that cross, receiving the full cup of wrath that we so rightfully deserved. Buried, rose again, conquering death, and was glorified and ascended into heaven. There's the gospel right there. And so we're going to always struggle with repentance if we think that we're that we're a good person or that we don't have this sinful nature in our heart. We're not going to see a need for a cure for, for a disease that we have. To verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Testimony is a principle found in the law that requires obedience and serves as a warning, if not kept. These regulations are right and reliable. God gave these testimonies to us in all wisdom concerning righteous living. So if we think about in uh, how sure God's word is, if, we, if you were to go to Second uh, Peter, or, or the first chapter of Second Peter, Peter talks about being with Jesus on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Right before his very eyes, Jesus is transfigured. He gets to see him in his face 
like the sun and his clothes become white as light and Moses and Elijah appear before him and the other two disciples. Peter saw a glimpse of the glory of Jesus that he had before his incarnation and that he has after he was glorified or after he was uh, ascended. And so with that breathtaking experience, Peter says we have a more sure word confirmed to us and that you do well to pay attention to it. And then he says that no prophecy of Scripture comes from anyone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then so you compare God's sure word in the Bible with man's wisdom or with man's opinions that is so unreliable and says one thing one day and flip-flops. And so we just pray that God will continually humble us so we, that, that we can see that and that we can see the wisdom and guidance that is, that is needed in, in, in our lives. As Proverbs 11.2 says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. So when we approach Scripture, the testimony of the Lord that is sure, we come with a humble heart, fervently seeking and longing for God, his sure word, and he's going to make us wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. A guiding principle or rule that is used to control or influence or regulate conduct. So these aren't God's suggestions or recommendations to us, but absolute truths, divine doctrines. These precepts are right, and they're going to put us on the right path. In Psalm 119, we see thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light into my path. The world is, is so full of so much deceptions and pitfalls. It's like, how are we going to ever navigate through this world if we don't have any, any, any basis, any foundation to have it on? You know, man's way will say, uh, people, just follow your heart. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Man's way, if it feels good, do it. Proverbs 14.12, There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. A lack of morals is going to lead to pain and suffering. Our emotions are fleeting. They're not, they're, they're not rooted in truth. We could be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, any new fad or craze that comes up in popular culture. I mean, just look where we've gone recently in our culture. It's just the, the degradation and the, just the reprobation of a culture. And so God's ways, what is the biblical and wise way to approach all of our life's decisions? Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. And then I also think of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in seasons and its leaf does not wither. The rejoicing of, in my heart. I want to I be able to delight in the law of the Lord like that, right? He's the essence in pure joy. You know, I, I like getting up early in the morning and having my time in God's word. And there's just times where I'm going through scripture and reading and I mean, I'm just, I'm just rejoicing inside. I mean, there's just a bubbling over in me when I'm just sitting down quiet and I have my soul focus and my attention in God's word and the Holy Spirit is just opening things up for me. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful time just commuting with God through his word and then praying and just being able to, oh, Lord, you are so glorious. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. 
You know, sin, sin is going to offer us very a temporal joy, right? Material stuff is going to offer all this stuff to us. But it's all, it's a temporal and it's, and sin is destructive and it's just going to lead to death. The things of God are eternal and that's where, that's where our joy is found. That's what's going to be rejoicing our heart. I mean, being in Christ and seeing his love for us, that right, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's where my joy is. And so we see the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. God's word is pure, without error. It's free of any impurity. It's consistent all the way through scripture. It's clear. In Psalm 12, it reads, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace in the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. Metal purified by fire reveals the true nature of, the, of, uh, of the, in, the inner core. It removes the dross or any impurities in it. And so the comparison between the, the, the refined silver and God's, and God's, true, uh, God's word, it's just, it's true. It's undefiled in nature. It's, we can't say anything about that in, our, in and of ourselves. We are fully defiled without Christ in our lives, without Christ in us. So you want spiritual understanding? Don't seek, out, don't seek after godless counselors or gurus or anyone not rooted in God's word. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. We see here a deep reverence and worship for the sovereign of the universe, and it's clean, free from any corruption or error, and it's everlasting. Proverbs 9.10, we see the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Right? If you want to start understanding the, the things of God, start with the proper mindset of reverence and respect for God, for who God is. And we're not going to bring God down to our, to our own level, like I've, like I've stated earlier, right? But that's going to be so, it's impossible with man, right? It's something that God has to work in our lives. And, and that's something where we just plead, plead to the Lord. You know, the more time I'm, I'm, I'm in God's word and I'm seeking him, the more respect and just admiration I, I have for him. God doesn't, God doesn't want our, our works from us. We can't give anything to God. He commands to have our hearts. Jonathan Edwards said, holy practice is the most decisive evidence of the reality of repentance. In Proverbs, we see the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. You know, for those that are outside Christ, you stand on the edge of eternity under the wrath of God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Lord takes pleasure in those that fear him and those that hope in his mercy. You know, don't fight against God. Stop running. Look around. God has clearly revealed himself to us. Seek the Lord in, in prayer. Pray that he will humble you and open your eyes. Psalm 103.11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. God is so rich in mercy, he doesn't want anyone to perish, but come to repentance and faith alone in Christ. In verse 9, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. God's the creator of life. He makes the rules, he declares the judgments, 
they're true without error, and like his character are righteous, uh, righteous altogether. By communing with God and following his word, we will, we will seek after righteousness. We will hunger and thirst for it. The Holy Spirit puts in us a new heart, right? He's going to take that old, old heart out and give us a new, we're a new creation. And that's the, that's the new birth and that's the gloriousness of it all. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness, wow. I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. So as we've looked through these verses, we've kind of seen the the diamond from different aspects and and we just see the glory of God revealed to us through his word. And again, it just brings us to a point of praise and worship to him. And in verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. The carnal mind set on the flesh will never see this as a reality. Our sinful nature will blind us to the true gold of God's word because our soul focus isn't on, on him, it's on us, right? We have the, the, the cares of this world and it's just, and, and it's only by the quickening of the Holy Spirit that will open a person's eyes to see God and his word that they're more desirable than gold. Matthew 6, 19, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rot rush destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither rot, uh, moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's our treasure? I've heard this illustration of a of a, uh, of a man with a money belt on, has 50 pounds of gold around him. He's out at sea, and his ship is going down, and help is right around the corner, but the ship's going down, so he just, or a little boat's going down, so he has to jump out. He jumps in the water, and all he has to do is take off that money belt, and he'll, and, and he'll survive. But the weight, the weight of that drags him down to his death. Right? So is, that's the same with our worldly possessions, our worldly treasures, or our sin. And, and when we ponder that and, and contemplate that, we, we could just see how, how those things can just take a grip and a hold of our lives. In verse 11, more 11, moreover, by them is your servant warmed, and in keeping them there is great reward. The Bible's our instruction manual with plenty of clear warnings. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The more I have God's word in the, in the forefront of my mind, right? When I, when I am in God's word in the morning and I start the day off seeking him and not seeking myself or get caught up and, and get too busy and everything, but I am seeking him that just sets the mood for the whole day right there. My mindset is it's going to help me just have the things of God running through my mind, communing with God, singing psalms and hymns in my heart, just rejoicing in the Lord. And so when a certain situation comes up, it's going to be so much harder to sin because I have all that word and that knowledge in my heart. But when, when I start the day off and my, and my mindset where I get caught up with things, for me, I struggle sometimes with, I'll, I'll get so caught up in my work, I get so busy with things, and it's like, go, 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 I got to do this, I got this, 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 and, and I can easily just, just kind of take over my mind, and, I, and I'm thinking on things, and then you start going down the road of, how am I going to provide for my family, there's this, there's this, 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 and all these things start consuming you, and it's, it's like, just give it to the Lord. Give it to the Lord. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden vaults. Faults we see in verse 12. So David just has told us how perfect and sure, pure and clean and true the law of God is and the infinite worth of it. Now it's like he turns inward 
and, 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 and looks at himself. He sees the depravity of his heart. He sees the innumerable sins in his life against the backdrop of a holy God. And so, and so here we see David just pleading for grace. David knows that he can't be free of sin and, and walk in perfect holiness as God does. So then how can he be made innocent? Throw yourself on the mercy of the Lord. Put your full faith and trust in Christ as the redeemer of, of your soul. Verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. We see David longing for communion here with God. Sin will cloud our intimacy with God. It's, it's going to be static in our communication between us and him. You know, sometimes when we, right, when we sin, it's like, oh, I don't want to read God's word. It's, you feel that, that, you feel that distance away from you, but that's, it's the exact opposite. That's when we should become running to God, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David teaches us here to learn to love the law of God as a, to as a tool for exposing our hidden faults as well as showing us the dangers of presumptuous sins. David wants to be blameless so that nothing at all will stand between him and God. That's what I, that's what I want in my life. That's what I want in your guys' life. Right? Have that communion with the Lord and don't have any, I don't want any interference, Lord. Help me to, to seek you with my whole heart and with, and with my whole mind. And then finally in closing, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David just, is just humbly asking for for our words and our thoughts to line up with God's will. I mean, how can we do that in our life? In our life, fill our hearts with Scripture, get down on our knees before the Lord, and seek Him. And David knows that the Lord is his rock and redeemer, and that no amount of good works or anything he can do will make him right with the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord, and He alone deserves all the glory and praise. So in this psalm, God wants us to look up, see his creation, look down to his word, and look in at our own fallenness and, and, and see our, our need for a savior. So a call to action for us is just, I mean, stand strong for God. It's evident. He's our creator. His word is pure. Stand strong on that. Don't, don't buckle under the weight of pressure or anything. Stand firm. Stand strong on God's word. You know, the heavens are declaring the, God, uh, the glory of God every day. Are we declaring the glory of God in our hearts every day? And to the non-believers, just pray that God will open your eyes and that you will see him for who he truly is. Pray that you'll get an accurate view of him through scripture. And just pray that you will see the infinite sin that you have in your body and the infinite chasm that separates you from God. And that can only be filled by an infinite mediator through Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Lord, as we look to you, your creation, your word, you are amazing, Lord. You are so awesome and powerful beyond words, Lord. And your grace that you have, have shown to us, we can do nothing but stand in awe.
And I just thank you. Thank you for today, for the opportunity that I had to be up here. And I just thank you for this church and this body. And I just pray that you will be strong in our hearts and minds as we go forth this week, Lord. Help us to proclaim your goodness and to be a shining light for you, Lord. Because you are due the glory, the one and only. In Jesus' name, amen.